Kings, and welcome back to ZachCast, the official podcast for local government nerdery. I'm Chad. That is Patrick. And after a, a slight hiatus a little bit, over the yeah. holidays and then uh, the winter ice storm part due, <laughs> uh, we are back. And so we were actually hoping that we could record last week. We talked about it over the weekend and we said, okay, it's going to have to be on Monday because when this storm hits Monday afternoon, like our kids are going to be home for a few days and there's no way we can do a podcast. And so the plan was Monday, we would do a podcast last week. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know how bad it was where you were, but when I was leaving in the morning to take the kids, I was swerving all over the road yes. already. So we were canceled. So we were yeah. like, let's bring them back home and this is going to be it for the next few days. Yeah. We were, we were canceled on Monday morning. So we didn't even, we didn't even take the kids in. Like they canceled it first thing, 6 a.m. Monday morning. So we didn't go, but do you hear that? The quiet. The quiet. Oh my gosh. The sound of silence. Dude. So for, for me, so you, you went on a cruise uh, with the family. We went on a dude perfect cruise, by the way, uh, for parents that have kids. It was actually a blast. Uh, shout out to the dude perfect guys because they made it a whole lot of fun for my kids and they were very interactive and you know they're like superstars making 70 million dollars a year on YouTube, right? But uh, hanging out with 900 kids on a cruise ship for four days, like God bless you guys. Thank you. I can tell you hanging out with four kids in my house for four days it, it, was exhausting. And, and so that that's what gets me to the point. So we get back from the cruise ship. I, I mean, I, I have a kid who has not been to school in like 15 days, right? Because we get back from the cruise ship, he gets COVID. We, you know, and it's it's light COVID, like kid light COVID, right? So, but automatically, because our school district has these rules, which I'm fine with, that he has to stay home for five days, right? Which he was ready to go like on day, the next day, he could have gone back. Um, so he's home for that whole week. And I mean, I, I think you and I were interacting during that week. And like, every time I was on the phone with somebody, he's like in my ear asking me questions. Like, I'm just like, dude, I have to work. <laughs> but, uh, and then last week, like didn't even get them off to school on Monday. Uh, you and I were supposed to be on the road last week. We didn't even get on the road like mm-hmm. we were supposed to be. So um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. So I've had like 15 days of my kids in my left and right ear at the same time. And I can't even hear out of my right ear. And I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. So you should keep them on that side. You should keep them on that side. So, so anyways, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of awesome to have some, uh, like odd time and, you know, be able to kind of hang out and talk about some things other than, uh, dad, will you play me in Madden? Just so much Madden. Yeah. My oldest is really into rocket league. Oh, it's so fun. dude. Um, it's super fun. And, but what's unfortunate is that he's, he's seven and a half, right? So, uh, you know, he's kind of getting to that age where he can actually be proficient at video games. But until about two days ago, I would just mop the floor with him. Like mm-hmm. it didn't matter if you're playing like the soccer version, if you're playing rumble with all the power-ups, like it doesn't matter. I'd beat him like 15 to three. Yeah. Right. And so he does a pretty good job of not getting really upset about it, but I made the mistake. I got, I got soft on one game and I was like, I was up like seven to one and he was starting to get a little bit down. So like, I let him score a couple of goals, you know, uh-huh. just to kind of get back into it, get into a rhythm. And then all of a sudden it was like 12 to seven. <laughs> just destroyed me. And then since then, he's beaten me probably 75% of the times. Yeah. So here's this is the switch flip of of video games, parents and video games with kids, right? So we we just hit, like just hit the point where Mason can beat me at all games pretty much all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I have no shot in Madden. First off, he gets tricky and he like changes up settings in Madden to make it easier on himself and mm-hmm. and things like that. But you know, reality is, is it's real hard for me to beat Mason at anything in Madden at all. So maybe the last time we played Madden, 
I think you smoked me. When you when you left Hudson Oaks and you started working at home with me, uh-huh. we had this idea that we would have like Friday Madden days or whatever. That was back before we had, uh, you know, 40 clients waiting to get onboarded with property tax. Yeah. Well, also then COVID happened. And so it was True. like... And we got real busy. We doubled in size in like two months. <laughs> but we did play one time. And I just remember I was just like Peyton Manning, just at the line, calling audibles, calling hot routes, doing all this stuff. And like, it was... <laughs> For this guy who's never played football before, uh-huh. playing against the football the guy, venerable, the venerable uh-huh. backup offensive lineman, state championship for the mighty Katie. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty fun. Anyway, let's get to it uh, because, as interesting as this is to us, uh, we've got some some cool stuff to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So, the first thing I'm going to introduce this. I have one snarky comment to make. Okay, and then uh, I'll pass it to you and kind of get your thoughts. Costco has proposed in, uh, where is this? This is South Los Angeles, the Baldwin Village neighborhood. Yep. Okay. This is a, an, uh, this is like a sort of urban store with 800 apartments unit, 800 apartment units sitting on top of it. It's, it's an interesting concept. It's obviously, it's not the first big box store with apartments. I would say that if like, if a big box store is going to be designing apartments, as part of the building, it probably should be Ikea, you know, just because they, they already have all of these little. Could you imagine units. if like getting to your apartment was like walking through Ikea? Oh, you had to go through the maze. It'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's an interesting concept though. 23% of the units are low income. Okay. Um, so because it's 25% retail, 75% housing, it qualifies for the city's transit oriented development programs, um, other kinds of grants and things like that. The, the one snarky thing that I'll say is that generally the point of this sort of mixing and close proximity of living and and retail, especially groceries and things like that, is that by making things so close together, you don't have to uh, – you can shop more frequently, right? Mm-hmm. You can buy fewer things in smaller quantities because if there's a neighborhood grocery like right downstairs – it's not a huge deal to just pop in, grab what you need for dinner, and then take it up and, but and you, cook. But you can't buy smaller Costco, quantities at Costco. Like the whole point of Costco is that yeah. you go once a month. Yeah. Right? So yeah. It's, it's an interesting juxtaposition there of- They sell ground beef in like 15-pound logs, right? Right. Yeah. Like the business model, I think, may not be the right fit for this type of development. Um, but that's the one snarky thing. We can actually talk about the, the like the real- well, here, here's what here's what this, I would so. here's what I would tell you. One, I mean, I would hit up those dollar twenty five hot dogs and pizza slices all day. Like I would all, all day. day. Um, they're really really good. Um, but you know, here here's the thing. So a, a couple of things on this development. One, it's a food desert development. It's a lower income area. There are some things that they're proposing here, like they're putting in about twenty three percent. Um, you know, low income rent units in the facility. And I also want to mention to a lot of cities who who may not deal with this side, but what we see a lot of times in low income rent properties is they'll build 75% market rent. And those will be built with wood floors and granite countertops and tile backsplashes and things like that. And then they'll build 25% low rent units and they'll build it with linoleum and VCT and, you know, it have just like Formica, Formica countertops and things like that. Like, I, I just say that to cities to be like, when you're doing that PD, make sure that 100% of those units meet the, the building standard. 
like throughout. Let's yeah, I, mean, I think let's not have second class there, citizens live in there because they're getting a tax credit. Yeah, right? I think that in order to make it profitable, what you have to do uh, as as the city is like one way is to build those lower income apartments very cheaply mm-hmm. uh, so that you can afford it. The other one is to just sort of balance out a little bit more. Yeah. In terms of the bill quality on all of the units so that you can still kind of make that that return. The other thing is obviously having this retail, like having a Costco on the bottom is going to make all of the other um, residential side much more profitable. So right? I'm going to try to put myself in Costco shoes for a minute on this one. This is kind of my second point. If I'm Costco and I'm going to build a store in a food desert, which is very difficult to do, and a, a lot of shout out to a local Texas grocer that everybody knows the name of because they, in the markets that they are in, they have actively tried to fill food deserts in those markets. And this, their movement in the DFW area is going to be a good thing for DFW uh, to get that. But I will say this, Costco is probably trying to go in there and fill this food desert. And what better way to fill a food desert than put 800 customers on top of you, right? And no, technically, not 800. Say what? Probably 1,600. Like 1,600 customers, yeah, right? Up to 2,400 yeah. maybe. It's, it was like eight 800 units, right? So- mm-hmm. Um, what better way to do that? Uh, that's the same argument that you and I have made with these grocer-based developments where we're like, hey, when you're going to do a, a a typical retail power center, grocer-anchored center, like mix it. There's there's no reason. Like That's the opportunity for you as a city to justify why you would do multifamily politically. Now, we can justify it for you financially all day long, right? Because it's it's going to work better financially than a lot of other development styles will in, in a lot of cases. But when you have this opportunity where you have this gem of a retail development coming in and you have the ability to have mixed uses there, like try to combine them. And, and the problem is, is what I have found as I've worked with numerous cities on these type of projects is there's this wall built between retail developers and multifamily developers, and they don't talk, they don't communicate, they don't do anything. And so really the city has to be the one who says, okay, multifamily developer, like you like this 40 acres over here. That's great. But we need to see an integrated development plan where there's also a retail component. So you need to go partner with somebody on the retail side and bring them back to us, and then we'll look at it. Is it any surprise that there's such a dichotomy when basically our rules only allow them to be built separately? Uh, no, I mean that's 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 it, right? right? Uh, but you know, I, I've I've come to the conclusion that in order to do anything cool, you can't really build rules around it. You just have to build a PD, right? Plan, yeah. plan development district uh, for those folks who don't know what PD, we have some non-city people who listen to us. So I got to throw that in there. But I, ultimately I think it's just like every development has to be somewhat special. It, it's going to meet the future land use plan because it's still commercial. Right. Um, but you know, and even like in the state use codes, this is part of what cracks me up is a lot of times we characterize multifamily in the state use codes as, as multifamily commercial not multifamily residential. Residential. Yeah, which is really interesting, super nerdy tidbit about property tax data. But um, I, I just, you know, I, I think that there are solutions there. And so that's that's what I look at this. The, the third thing I want to bring up is the name of this real estate developer is Thrive Living. Thrive Living. Mm-hmm. And I just want to bring up how every multifamily developer that I have come across lately has branded themselves in some way to make them feel so much lighter and brighter, Right. Uh, and the reality is, is negotiation. Maybe BlackRock should take a take a cue. <laughs> Maybe BlackRock should be like, uh, what what would be a good name for Yellow BlackRock? Is a single family, <laughs> you know, uh, landlord, slumlord landlord, right? Like, what what would you what would you call them? So it'd have to be a brighter color than black. That's for sure. It, it would like orange horizons. There you go. So 
free advice, BlackRock. Yes, free advice. So, so anyways, I just I thought that was a, a funny tidbit from this story as well. But I, I get it. Like I, you know, my thing is is I would just like it not to be such a singular use like a Costco in that in that retail mixed development. I like the fact that they're doing structured parking because they're not having to spread out over additional acreage. You know, I like you know that they're getting so many. Well, it's also near there. transit, right? So they don't have to have as many parking spaces. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we we probably don't need to have as many parking spaces on most multifamily units that we do because, like like little things in in Texas, which are goofy, we force them to have a garage, but we don't count the spot behind the garage as a parking spot in a lot of communities, right? Mm-hmm. Like in like in front of the garage. Yeah, like in front of the garage, uh, and we force that spot to be twenty feet long and then have a twenty four foot fire lane behind it. So it's like, okay, that's kind of weird. Um. You know, little little things like that where we could slim up the amount of parking that we have. Um, you know, I just can't. I, I always tell cities, I'm like, hey, the the more dense and high that you can go on the acreage, the more. But you, you're going to take a shot because it's multifamily politically, no matter what you do, right? So you might as well do this in a way that that limits it on its its acreage. Um, and then the other thing on this article that I didn't, it did, I don't think it showed in this article. It doesn't, yeah. That what the minimum square footage of the units are. And that's also I was wondering about that too. Yeah. If there's going to be like mostly studios or if it's going to be, you know, two and three bedroom. I, I probably should have larger, larger families. Probably should have talked about this more in like a checklist form, like things you need to check into. And you and I had this conversation the other day about uh, you know, going in and, and kind of making our system smarter by tagging some things, like development styles that we find. Um, and and it it just got me kind of thinking like on multifamily development, like what are the things we check? You know, on on things like that, like minimum square footages, number of one bedrooms versus two bedrooms, those type of things, uh, parking standards, and and those are all um, very community driven. Like, um, you know, in the community that you and I worked in, you know, we had like three kids per household, so we wanted more two bedrooms and three bedrooms than we, you know, than we would normally get. You know, normally you're going to have like eighty five percent one bedroom apartments. So, uh, and we wanted that average square footage. I, I think our goal all the time when we were working on projects was we wanted average square footage, like over 900 square feet livable. I think something like that. Yeah. I think that's what it ended up at least with the project that I was still. Yeah. So, I left. um, but you know, if you're going to build it, at least they're doing it somewhat right. Okay. So here's, here's what I have. If you're yeah, wrapped up here, I'm done with my stuff. It. Yeah. Okay. There's always a tendency to make the best the enemy of the good right and so like there are there are problems with this development um the first thing just from a livability standpoint right this is this is in a transit oriented area um the idea is to densify and provide some retail particularly food in a way that you could just walk to it right Mm -hmm. but when it comes to actually like having a a livable and thriving street, a Costco is not going to do it. Right. Because when, even if it has like plastered with windows, that will be better, but it's still just this one huge behemoth. Right. And what really makes these kind of urban walkable areas thrive is having multiple storefronts and differences in, uh, in dimensions and, and in design style. Within, you know, a 15, 20, 30 foot space so that as you're walking, it's always something different. Um, There's always places that you can go into and see people. And with this design, there's probably going to be like two doors right Mm -hmm. on either side. There's going to be some 
concrete walls, uh, tilt wall probably at the the ground level, and maybe some glass. It's gonna like, be like, just, it's, like, it's, just it's, looking at the rendering. It's gonna be like the very sterile CVS and Walgreens that like located so downtown sterile. downtown areas, right? Yeah, where it's like in the bottom of a high rise building, and you're like, this is so out of place. There's nothing. There's, yeah, like, I'm just gonna be walking on this 500 foot block, and yeah. there's nothing for me to do or look at or or you know keep my attention. I may as well just be driving yeah. here. So I, I would agree. So I would in agree terms of creating a community and an environment where like that street is lively, it's not really conducive to this kind of big single use. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have um, with when we try to do some of this mixed use development. I think in an urban area, you should, I mean, this isn't like Manhattan, right? But um, it's, it's, it's a little bit more of a grid area. It's near transit. So like, I think you could probably be a little bit more adventurous and perhaps, I mean, one of the easiest things that they could have done or they, they, there's not even a building permit yet. So, but just line that line that street uh, frontage mm-hmm. with vendors, right? Like you go to, I, I don't know how, it's been a long time since I've been to Costco. I'm sure that they don't have the kind of thing like Walmart or Target does where there's like a lens crafters and a uh, salon and things like that. Um, but at least give that street some soft edges that you can actually enjoy as you're walking through it, yeah, right? Yeah. The one thing that I will say about this, which is like when we talk about multifamily or density or things like that, especially here in Texas with this more suburban development style, like it's one thing to say, yeah, well, this is how you can get multifamily in, right? By putting also some commercial next to it. I think the biggest problem that we have in Texas with multifamily is that we just build massive apartment complexes like behind gates and with like surrounded by parking and there's there's set apart from everything else just like our residential neighborhoods are single family neighborhoods so like yes you can put a lot of people near some of this commercial activity and that's what we tend to do with with apartments is like those are the buffers between commercial and single family residential is our apartment complexes but there's still just these huge monolithic spaces that they're not really integrated. Like there's no reason that you couldn't build an apartment complex that is that lines the street. Yeah. Right. That provides um a sort of face to the street as you're either walking or driving on it or biking or whatever, you know, whatever mode of transportation that you want. But when it's all back behind a fence, like we looked at a neighborhood as we were starting to do some of this profitability analysis. The neighborhood itself was very profitable because it had a lot of commercial and a lot of apartments. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the actual livability of this area, like a person that lives across the street from the little grocery store, which I'm not going to mention what it is because I don't want to highlight where it is, but literally 400 feet as the crow flies, maybe even less, is a whole apartment wing that is like right across the street from a little grocery store. Mm-hmm. And it would still take them about 15 minutes to walk because they have to go all the way to the, around the entrance, yeah. go down to the next intersection crossover. Like this is not as uh, suitable for the actual sort of living experience as it could be. Well, like I, it's, I, it's better yeah. because it's more profitable, but it's still lacking in terms of like vitality and vibrancy of that neighborhood. I think that's going to be one of the coolest things we're going to be able to see historically with data is as we start to label the different styles of developments you are like, you know, built wall, you know, walkable, you know, mixed use multifamily versus like behind a fence multifamily that's not real walkable at all. It's it's totally, you know, vehicular built, you know, for for transportation. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how 
those developments grow in property value versus decline in property value, things like that. Like really being able to study what happens to those developments over time, I, I think will be will be really interesting. So, um, you know, it we're getting better at it, but you know, it's just the, it's like the little thing of. Uh, apartment developers, apartment developers will readily admit that there it is not safer to build apartments with behind gates, right? Mm-hmm. It's safer get... to make make the street someplace that people want to be, correct? And though that's what's going to provide you with the safety, right? The that's gate uh, that's sort of setting you apart. Yes, all it's doing is just creating vacuums on the inside. Yes, yeah, it's so. But you know, those conversations like they need to be had, and and a lot of times what's crazy is is they're not had at the development level; they're had at the city level, right? So. Uh, just encourage cities to keep talking about those things. Cool. So that's Costco. What do you have for us? Well, I'm going to talk some meat and potatoes. Uh, we're going to jump into legislative session started. Everybody's most exciting time. Background music claps. Um, Text ledge, our favorite time of year. Our favorite time of year. Favorite time, time, time of the biennium. Of the biennium. Let's let's hope that uh, they d- they don't decide to come back for every year uh, anytime soon. Uh, thank goodness we meet every other year. Uh, so far, because the state has such a record $32 billion surplus, um, we haven't seen anything like crazy stupid come out yet. Uh, a couple of things I want to give some updates on, just so everybody knows. There is a sales tax local sourcing bill that is pending. It's not changing what the comptroller's rules have been shifted into. Uh, it's HB uh, 1465, and it has a companion bill, Senate Bill 333. Um, and this bill specifically would allow a location that was in effect on August 31st of 2019, which was the rule change date, by the way, just give everybody that September 1st was, um, and was a place of business of the retailer for purposes of certain economic development agreements, that it would remain a place of business of the retailer to the term of the agreement. And during the term of the agreement, the sale of taxable items in a consummated place of business that the sale would be consummated at is that is the place of business under the law. So this would, if this passed, would grandfather all of those, this would grandfather the lawsuit cities, right? The cities that are currently suing the comptroller and going through multiple different rounds of lawsuits. Um, it would grandfather them and probably and, and maybe solve some of their issues. I don't know if it would 100% solve their issues because at the end of these economic incentive agreements, they're still going to be missing whatever percentage the city was getting, right? Um, but it at least would kind of salvage that for uh, for those communities in, in somewhat of a way. We I have not seen another sourcing bill filed yet to change. Like last year, we got both sides of the equation. Like, let's change it back to the old way and let's... Uh, let's go to a full, you know, uh, like destination sourcing model, right? And so, I think we we haven't seen those bills filed yet. Uh, and and when we do, we certainly will jump on a pod and talk about it, and we'll talk to you about the reasons they're good, bad, or indifferent, or ugly, whichever, and uh, and go through that. Want to talk about property tax a little bit? There's not a there's not a lot of stuff filed on property tax yet that is going to be super, super crazy. I mean, you've got the standard like eliminate property taxes in Texas totally. So eliminate property taxes by uh, 2033. If you want a good read, check out House Bill 1513. Has no shot of passing, by the way, but it's just a good read. Um, You know, property tax exemptions. There's been a lot of exemption conversation that's been, uh, that's been had. We are, um, you know, currently seeing, 
the ability for cities to possibly increase exemptions. Uh, you know, you've got Senate Bill 546 that talks about that. Um, you've got uh, the appraisal cap bill that's also that like next companion, which is 547. That's basically uh, a Prop 13 bill, right? And that would lower the appraisal cap on homesteads to 5%, right? From 10. I believe it's the 5% reduction rate. Let me make sure. Would establish an appraisal cap on appraised value of residence homestead as the lesser of 10% of appraised value of the property for the preceding tax year or the product of an inflation rate for the preceding year expressed as a decimal and the appraised value. So it would actually establish it to the CPI, right? Which like what CPI are that you going to use no there? Sense. It makes no sense at all, <laughs> right? Um, but once again, yes. really don't think that the price of your the price of your homesteaded property is directly correlated to consumer inflation. Co- correct. That makes yes. a lot of sense. Um, the one thing that I do know a lot of cities are trying to talk about because we have a lot of clients who are asking us to do a little bit of analysis on this, like what would be the oh, impact? Real quick, real quick, yep. real quick. I, I want to make sure I understood that it would be the lesser of ten percent or inflation. That's correct. So if inflation so was under over normal 10%, circumstances, you're talking about two to three percent. Appraisal growth. Yes. Okay. So it is Prop 13. It's Prop 13. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and, and sorry for everybody, Prop 13 Prop is 13. the yes. absolute economic disaster of the state of California. Just put it that way. If you want to become California, pass this bill um, and you will have the same problems and the crazy property values. And the, you know, look, we have learned when you manipulate the market for residential real estate, it gets more expensive. So just don't manipulate it. Let the market work. That's all I got. All let right. people build and let the, yeah. Yeah, correct. I saw something funny yesterday. Uh, someone had written, property values should always go up, but property taxes shouldn't. <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the take that is basically the root cause of so many of our Interesting. Uh, local government problems. Interesting. Yeah. So I, the one thing I didn't want to jump into, okay, so there's a $32 billion surplus. Um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has come out and said that they want to raise the um, homestead cap for um, for school districts specifically, which is really state funding. It's it's I call it the, the, the slide by state income tax, right? Because you're paying your property taxes and it's really going to pay for schools at a state level. And the funding formula of what you pay has nothing to do with your, what your local school district is. It's yeah, just except like a, for your magic pennies. Y- expect, that's it, basically the difference. Yeah, that's the difference. So um, the, the state wants to increase that homestead exemption cap now. And uh, you know, we've heard a couple of different numbers that have been put out. The, the, uh, the Lieutenant Governor wants to go all the way to 100000 Uh Right now, what's been put out there is that they're going to increase it by 30000 is it what is it now? No. Is it twenty five? Is it forty? Is it, it 40? no? So they increased it uh, they, to forty. They did okay. Yeah. So it's at forty now. Um, so instead of buying down the school district M and O tax rate with sales tax growth, right? They want to basically get an appraisal, or, or sorry, it go ahead and put that homestead exemption in there, and an increase, which we talked about two years ago. I'm just going to kind of rehash what we talked about two years ago. You know, there's a statewide dream in Texas, which is not far fetched. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of take a conservative route on this one. What makes us not competitive in the state of Texas a lot of times is school district taxes, and that has nothing to do with the ISDs. It's not their fault. It's just the way the state has decided to fund it. Uh, the, the ISDs only control INS, right? No, I understand. Yeah. But there's a little bit. There's a little bit in terms of 
the structure of our school system. The, the inefficiencies in the structure of the school system, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, we could have that argument. Uh, you know, we, 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 we you, you are correct. Yeah. And like you live in a school district that's like one of the largest landmass school districts in the state of Texas, right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah. 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 But, it, but in other places, you have like essentially unpopulated areas with like four or five school districts. Correct. Right. Yeah. And all of the administrative overhead that comes with that. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you and I both live in school districts where that's not necessarily the case because they're just right. such high growth areas. But uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. I think most schools would kind of agree with that too. Um, there's a local control argument there. Like I want, you know, I want my local education to be more locally controlled, even though pretty much everything's set by the state, anyways. Uh, and but ultimately, we had this conversation where the MNO rate is basically set by the state. They've been going through what they call tax compression, so every year growth over two and a half percent. You're still paying an increase of two and a half percent of your school taxes every year. I just want to point that out to everybody so you know. But every year, the growth over two and a half percent that you have is compressed. So your tax rate compresses to what they call the compression cap. Um, and a lot of districts are going to hit that compression cap next year, right? Because they are fast growth districts, like where you live and where I live. There's a lot of revenue growth, and so they get that two and a half percent increase on the old revenue. And boom, they compress and they're going to hit the cap that the state put in place so that people didn't overly compress, right? Well, the thought process of this compression cap system that they put in place was actually probably somewhat well-founded that they wanted to try to get the state off of the M&O tax rates for schools. And the thought was they could do this over 10 or 15 years and they could get that tax rate down to a a small and minimal M&O number, right? They're kind of going away from that. Like they built this whole system two years ago to do it and to have this compression, but they're going away from it. And let me tell you- and now they have all this money. Well, now they have it. all this money. Right. Yeah. And let me tell you why I think they're going away from it. I'll be honest, there's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors coming out of this legislative session, especially when it comes to school finance. They don't want to pay teachers. They don't want to pay for teachers' health insurance. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but like, I was in city government. You were in city government. We had great insurance. We were both on TML IBP. We paid a reasonable rate. Uh, we had great insurance. If you're and a most, teacher, yeah, most cities cover the employees. Yes, if, premiums. If you are a teacher in the state of Texas and you make sixty thousand dollars a year as a starting teacher and you have a kid, right? You're going to be paying a thousand dollars a month for insurance, and that's an HSA based plan, no PPO. No copays, you're a hundred percent out of pocket till five thousand dollars. Right? Just do that math. And you would understand that it is it is a terrible setup system. People ask the question, well, why is it that bad? Teachers are typically younger. Well, because they tied in the retirement side of the system, because the state didn't want to pay its fair share, they tied in the retirees into the normal employees to buffer throughout. Well, they don't want to talk about any of that. Right. So they don't want to get in compression because they got all this, these other things that they want to go spend this money on. And so we're going to have a legislative session where we act like conservatives in front of everybody, but then we make decisions behind the scenes that are not real good at conservative principles. I'm just, this is my shocked face. I, I just, yeah, every, everybody's shocked. Right. I, I just, I say this because why would they do this as an exemption? It, it 
one, it doesn't give everybody credit. Renters are not going to get as much right. credit, right? Um, and so you'll get none because it's not a homestead. Correct. And in the, in the thought process of, well, most homeowners are Republicans is it's just, it doesn't really float. And you know, a lot yes, of, so let's, even if that were true, let's give all of the people on our party a tax break <laughs> and everyone else. It's, not. it's still, like, it's still this. terrible, but here's the deal. At least with compression, it affected everyone. Right. Correct. And we, I, I talked about this two years ago, but the whole compression thing was, Nobody really knew if it would be able to pay for itself in the future years, right? Because you have to pay mm-hmm. for that compression every year. Right. It's compounding. It's compounding. And so nobody knew what it would pay for it. So I think what they've done is they're like, wow, that was a lot more expensive than we thought it was going to be in future years. And so now we just want to do this one-time homestead exemption and only benefit a certain percentage because we can get a higher number and we can go home and say, well, we cut your taxes 8%. Right. Um which, oh, by the way, you're going to give me this additional homestead exemption. My house is going to go up 10% this year because I'm going to, we're in North Texas. Everybody hits the cap in North Texas. Is there not a cap in North Texas? Um, so I'm going to hit 10% this year. You're going to give me an additional $30,000 of exemption. Oh, by the way, my taxes are about to go up forty-five dollars or $50,000, right? So I'm still going to have a tax. Not increase. your taxes, your, your appraised My appraised value. value. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. But I just, I, I don't so know. you still have a tax increase, and there's no way that you could say, like, I don't think there's a way that you could do it where you could actually have a reduction in taxes without serious compression, which was the whole idea that was talked about using all of this money. And I actually right? like the compression Ponzi scheme. I, I think it could work over time, right? I'm just, I'm just being honest. Like, I think we could take little bites of the apple every single year, and we could try to get that down. Because my bigger mindset is. At some point, Texas is not going to be this big, beautiful place where everybody wants to move. We're going to have to be competitive. And in the pure numbers, we're not. When we look at taxation and where we land nationally with states for taxation, we're not competitive. So let let me bring this back just a little bit to our first discussion. Mm -hmm. If the solution – now, this is obviously school districts have much uh, much less of a role in development. But let's just say that this kind of eventually kind of carries forward over to to cities. Um, Does it at least make single family residential development even a little bit less enticing? Man, I I would say yes, except for for rent growth, man. Rent growth has far outpaced um, the the value rise in resident single family residential households in the past couple of years, right? Like you have to take that into account. You well, don't yeah, really have to build more of it if 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 there's enough supply. But you and I have pricing control to mitigate now, that, right? Like with, in this inflationary economy, you and I are sitting pretty because we're sitting in our homesteaded houses on two point nine percent interest uh, interest rates, right? Thirty year two point nine. Like we we are sitting pretty. And these folks who are having to go out there and buy a house that is my same house for three times what I paid for it and what I mortgaged it at for. At a rate that's two and a half at times. A rate that's two and a half times. Like that's that's tough. Um, you you have less control in the multifamily side. So I I get from a development style and and even from a lifestyle standpoint that you can do that. But the crazy thing is, is the multifamily development right down the road for me, which is a beautiful development, very well done. Uh, I don't know who was responsible for it, but <laughs> um, that development, the the two bedroom apartment there rents for more than my mortgage rate. Like I, I just you know, so it's it's tough. It's a lifestyle choice, you know, so forth and so on. But 
uh, at least when I'm paying my mortgage every month, you know, a third of that payment or more is going to principal, which is actually a, a little bit of a savings account. And honestly, in the United States, that's like, that really is most Americans. That's it. That's, it. that's all they do to save. And so, you know, unless you want to George Bush this, which they all, you know, they all hit them hard for, right? When George Bush wanted to privatize Social Security so that Americans could get their saving rates up. Well, to be honest, that may not have been such a bad idea if we go back and look at it and we look at what the numbers would have been and you look at the growth on the market. Our generation is not guaranteed Social Security, and we would have been guaranteed 7 to 9% returns for the last 15, 20 years. That probably would have been a little better, but, you know, hey, it is what it is. Well, yeah. If you look at it over the long run, yes. Yeah. Over the past 15 years, not so much, but. Correct. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, ultimately, we just don't, we don't always do things logically, and we shoot ourselves in the foot for it. This appraisal um, homestead exemption, this additional homestead exemption just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like a lot. Like, how much is it going to cost you? versus how much benefit is somebody actually going to see in their tax bill? Yeah. To me, that's the most interesting thing about how this whole conversation has gone from, you know, we're going to get rid of the school MO property tax because we have $32 billion. And now it's like, oh, well, we're going to just give you this slight increase in your homestead exemption and call it a day. So what's in the- Which I understand there's, yeah. so, there are issues involved with spending all that money, right? Like right. you have to take an affirmative vote to allow that extra money to be spent. Yeah. So um, what- and also- I, I I do worry, like the, my, my biggest concern about this whole talk about getting rid of the school property tax by using using our surplus plus sales tax growth is, can you can you rely on that for the next hundred years? You right. know, if you're going to get rid of those property taxes using sales tax growth and whatever your current one-time budget surplus is, like that's that's risky. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's it's. Super risky. And I, I think you know, we gotta remember $32 billion that's out there right now. A lot of that is COVID money. It's it's not a, the bulk of it, but a lot of it's COVID tax. money, right? A lot of it is severance tax because we are exporting a ton of natural gas um out of the state. And so, and you know, I which takes me to my next topic that I'm gonna hit on real quick. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move past this one, but it's related. The other bills that we're going to see come forward that I, I don't know if I've actually seen them filed yet, but I just know they're coming through the pipeline and some committees and some things that I'm on uh, and people talking about. But we fully expect that there are going to be some bills filed. I, in my opinion, needed bills that are going to address electric vehicles. Specifically, they're going to address gas taxation and the lack of that gas taxation with electric vehicles. So I'm an electric vehicle owner. Um it's actually a really fun Ford Mach-E uh, Mustang. I have a golf cart. Does that count? Uh, it doesn't count. No, it's it, it does not. Uh, but I, I could tell you, I've had the, I, I don't know how long I've had it, almost like seven months or eight right, months. Yeah, six, seven months. Yeah. Um, and I have not paid a lick of gas tax yet. I drive on all y'all's roads. Um, and so, and, and you know, I'm saving $300, $350 a month in gas versus what I pay in electric uh, when I net out everything, by the way. Like there's got to be some way, like by mileage or something, that we there's got to be a way because your your electric cars are going to take up more and more and more and more of the roadway, the percentage of vehicles that are owned, and you know you've got to figure out a way to to recover the cost of that electric car. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, really, it's just it's just the the um, mileage standard increases on steroids, correct? Right? 
The second half of that is, is that cities are going to lose a significant amount of revenue because they make a lot of revenue on sea stores and gas stations specifically. And so cities are going to have to recover a lot of revenue. I have proposed to a couple of legislators that they really should consider allowing those cities that were not cities or did not opt in at the time to tax electricity. Um, and that would be a significant like a increase. one-time makeup. A one-time makeup. And a what about sales tax on vehicle purchases? Man, Alabama. Wouldn't it have been great to have located Hudson Oaks, Texas, like in the middle of Alabama's sales tax area? We would have just... We used to joke about that, remember, that we would... Because we we sold like a, could, yeah we'd send so much money back to the residents and and and, and we sold like thirty thousand cars a year in a two and a half square mile area right like we would be sending yeah. residents checks for the privilege but, of but let's consider this though let you're saving three hundred dollars a month yeah in gas a year. in gas no a month a month a month yeah you drive a lot yeah. Okay. So we use that car for every, so, you know, I've got my truck and that's my gas guzzler and we go everywhere we travel. We take that. Um, and we use the Mach-E for like my wife drives it to work every day and back. And then if we go anywhere, uh, within, within DFW, within the Metroplex really, um, cause you could drive it home and back anywhere in the Metroplex about 290 mile range. Um, and so, yeah, we, we drive that everywhere. And so it gets a lot of mileage on it. Okay, so the one thing that doesn't necessarily help every city, it's been a long time since I've looked at that list of who actually assesses sales tax on residential electric and who is eligible or was eligible to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how many cities, if you allow them to do that, that would actually impact. But many cities have uh, car dealerships. Yep. And the one thing that is a benefit there is that if you're saving this much money by buying an EV, Right, you're saving this much money on gas. An extra two percent on the purchase price, amortized over five or six years, um, is probably not gonna hit you. Like you're probably still gonna net savings. So I think it's gonna come in vehicle registration. The dealers associations are not gonna allow it to happen at point of purchase, right? So there's not gonna be like a mileage fee at point of purchase for you know we have an expectation that in your your sixty month lifespan here that you're gonna use you know. No, I'm just talking about adding it. You have a six to a quarter percent motor vehicle sales tax. Oh, you're just only goes to the state. I'm just saying, add a two percent local option. Yeah, I mean, it it would generate so much money. So, but you that's the comment. If you're going to do a statewide sales tax, that's that's one of the major ways you get rid of uh, because we already have a system to keep people from cheating the motor vehicle sales tax. Like, if you go buy a vehicle in Oklahoma and you come to Texas to register it, they're going to make you pay motor vehicle sales tax. I don't know Mm -hmm. if everybody knows that, but they do. If you move from California into Texas, they're going to make you pay motor vehicle sales tax on the worth and value of the vehicle in order to get your plates. So it's just a, so there, there are systems set up for that. I think what's going to happen is when an electrical vehicle owner goes in to get their registration tag every year or every two years, they're going to have to pay a multiplier in that registration process based on how many miles they drove. So like a millage or just like a flat fee, we're going to see one or the other. Well, the biggest the biggest problem with all this, or not problem, is maybe, but the thing that it will highlight the most is just how subsidized our road transportation system is. Oh, super subsidized. Yeah, and it's a it, that's actually a really good point because that's a topic of conversation is how how big that subsidy is, and um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's wild. But we yeah, have when you factor in the fact that we actually don't maintain it properly, it's even worse. Well, but yeah, when that revenue starts to dry up, now that doesn't affect localities as much, right? Because they're getting gas tax money through 
cogs and and things like that, but not typically for for neighborhood roads. Let's it just see, doesn't flow, it just more. doesn't flow back because of the way the political system in Texas work. It doesn't necessarily flow back to the cities in the region in which it was generated. Um, the right. the the term for that that's used in those areas that are negatively impacted are called fair share allocations. That's what they call it. And um, like in DFW, we send more of our, because we have regional toll revenues, RTR revenues for the shared lanes that we have on all our highways, those things that are super popular and used all the time that we can't build any more of because the legislature said we can't. Um, and so you're starting to see that, you know, happen. Um, yeah. So the other thing is they could just, they could just, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You're fine. Um, just put tolls on the main lanes too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's like at some point you have to pay for the use of whatever you're using, right? It's a lot of valuable space, Correct. public space. Yes, very right? much so. And just using it for free, there's there's a perverse market incentive there. So I'm going to give you right. like a crazy example. So the 121 corridor, right? The 821-21 corridor going towards the airport, um, that has hit, this, this is just like crazy Texas politics at this point, but that corridor has hit its contractual obligation for the contractor because it's so profitable for the contractor that built it it's hit its obligation for them to go expand the free lanes of that highway uh, and also expand the managed lanes so to put additional managed lane in and then i think they have to put like an additional or two additional lanes in on 121 820 and maybe a part of 183 yeah but right? we don't need that so but i'm just i'm kind of telling you like what yeah. they what they need and what they're required to do contractually here's the crazy thing is the state, because of the law they passed, there's a contractual obligation, but they have not allowed it to happen. It's basically free money for the region to build something, but they haven't allowed it to happen yet. And so, yeah. well, I think that's I think that happens to be one scenario where they probably are making the right decision for maybe the wrong reasons. Yeah, but well, like, I, mean, I don't I, think I we think need to expand you, those highways. I'm a big proponent of the managed lanes in that area specifically because they serve a very specific purpose for most of DFW which is you can get to the airport in a specific matter of time, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was like, man, I got to leave an hour and a half early to get to the airport. And it's really a 25 minute drive, right? Yeah. Um, so the managed lanes, even though they may cost me six or seven bucks, they guarantee me that I can get to the airport in 25 minutes and not miss a flight, which, you know, for you know folks that are becoming more and more road warrior like you and I will become at some point, it's it's going to be beneficial to have, but I yeah, but it's a rare occurrence, at least on the Fort Worth side, that those lanes are are backed up. The, man the managed lanes or the main lanes? Yeah, the managed lanes. Oh yeah, the main lanes are always backed up. Yeah. So the managed lanes are never unless there's an yeah, accident. So then, an accident or a truck who's driving sixty miles an hour. Correct. Um, yeah. So there's still capacity on those other lanes. That if the pricing was adjusted a little bit more, I mean, yeah, the no idea is you do want free flowing traffic on the toll lanes, right? You don't Correct. want it to be backed up. But there's this formula that's in that agreement where where that that provider has to go in and and build additional capacity in the in the free lanes because they're making so much money in the managed lanes. So that's just counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, you know, I know you all they're gonna do. I know you don't like big freeways. So well even if you did it, like in the short term, that would just take people off of the toll roads, which is going to offset that productivity, right? Correct. Yeah. I just, you know, there's, so and then those other lanes will fill back up. Correct. And then you'll say, we need a new, we need a new toll roads lanes as well. So yes. it's just this never ending cycle of just building more until you're Katie freeway. Until you're the world's largest freeway. 
Yes, the Katy Freeway I grew up on, which I will tell you the best part about that project though was they worked 24 hours a day. That was like the fastest project ever built because they worked 24 hours a day every day and they split it up into multiple contractors and they just, they got after it. But the fair share allocation, I wanted to get back to that because that's what we were talking about. So for all the gas taxes that are paid in North Texas and for all the toll revenue that is paid in North Texas and all that type of stuff, North Texas does not get its full benefit at fair share allocation because they take that money and they basically build kind of pet projects in areas that, that couldn't afford it. Or they build like hugely expensive projects, i.e. I-35 in Austin. They build hugely expensive projects with with that money and they kind of shift it around. So it's been a number of years since DFW has gotten its fair share allocation. DFW is also, just point this out, I'm not like a DFW lover. I actually grew up in Houston. But DFW is also one of the only regions in the nation that has grown uh, in population and not grown in congestion which is a interesting way to do it. And I do have to give a massive shout out to a lot of that has to do with our MPO, with our cog. Like we just have a really good cog in North Texas um, and they do good work. There are a bunch of city managers, by the way. I just want to point that out. Way to go. Uh, but there are a bunch of MPAs that either worked in cities or retired from cities and, um, you know, project managed. And they just, they just do a much better hands-on job of making sure these big projects get off the ground and funded. Um, and you know, as, as crazy as it, as it can be, uh, and you and I worked with them directly all the time. I'm not going to call out any names, but they had some really good staff members that we worked with and we had project overages that they took care of us on and, and things like that. And, and they just, they really take care of the local cities as if they are also city employees. Uh, yeah, so note cool. to people, all you have to do is ask, just ask. And, and they're really good. <clears throat> so, Yeah. <laughs> So anyways, that's all I got, man. Yeah, that was good. That turned into a more free-ranging discussion than I was expecting when you said you were going to just talk about some of the uh, some of the legislative bills that were coming up. So it's good. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. So um, you know, we'll start to see once more of these bills get through um, Ledge Council, because that's where a lot of this stuff is, is locked up. A lot of the stupid bills that we've been hearing about, Ledge Council has kind of killed. Some of them because they're like, hey, that's not constitutional, so forth and so on. So we're we're kind of watching what's coming down the pipeline. There's going to be something. There's going to be something big. There's going to be some, you know, type of appraisal cap bill that they're going to try to get done. Like that's the big thing they're pushing after this year, especially with inflation going where it's it is right now. So um, just FYI, that's what that's what we're seeing right now. I I just the price of housing has nothing to do with CPI inflation. It actually has an impact on CPI inflation. But it's not CPI inflation. So housing right now is going up at a faster clip than actual CPI is. So yeah, well, it has been here and especially in the Metroplex for quite some time. Correct. Um, and last but not least, I'll end on we have to do something about chapter 313, because if we don't do something about chapter 313, we will not be competitive in e-commerce development. That's my last soapbox. We'll work on that one. You'll have to give us more of your insights uh, on the next episode of Zachcast, which will be coming soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Probably as long next, as no one, probably next like week. no more ice storms and no more COVID and fun things like that to keep us away from, uh, from these conversations. Chad and I are headed to South Texas this week. The actual, the actual South, South Texas, Texas <laughs> not Houston. Uh, absolutely. So, all right, man, we'll see you uh, later this week. All right, buddy. Bye. Have a good one. Bye.